Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision and our brand new season, The Fintech Fuse, heading into 2024. This is Theo, your host for this episode. Today, I would like to welcome back an old friend to the show, Greg Schoenberg, previously the mastermind behind the much-read and beloved financial revolutionist. And mind you, we don't typically bring a lot of guests back for the second time, so we do love them. Hello, Greg. Thanks for joining us again. Hello, Theo. Thank you for having me back. I'm honored to be a encore guest on your show. <laughs> you are one of the very, very few. I think it's less than five, if I remember. Oh, wow. uh, I don't keep count, but yeah, we, we want to keep it fresh and, and interesting and different, but we like you. So it's been a while, though, since you were lost with us. So catch us up on what you've been up to, because a lot has changed in the last 12 months, hasn't it? Yes. And for me, I guess I sort of hung up my, my fintech shingle when I sold the financial revolutionist a couple of years back. That didn't mean that I wasn't still very much interested in fintech. I am and was and continue to be, but I didn't have the same mechanism to deal myself uh, in the space anymore after I um, ultimately stopped writing and analyzing and following the news and doing interviews. Uh, but fortunately, there are good people like you who uh, are doing interviews and speaking with important people in the space. I'm so happy to uh, check in with an old friend like you. And um, in terms of, of what I have been up to, when, it, when I sold EFR, I got heavily involved in crypto from a number of different vantage points, both as an investor and an advisor. Uh, I also took a, uh, a stake in a, um, an entertainment company that was involved with creating virtual characters. The name of that company is Hume. It's doing pretty well, I'm happy to say, quite well. And I started advising a, um, a big global macro hedge fund in New York named Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors, which I continue to do. Uh, and um, that scratches the itch I have for markets and trying to analyze how innovation will impact markets. And then lastly, as of about a year and a half, two years ago, I started doing leadership coaching. So all of those things collectively uh, have taken up my time. Plus, I now have a very small dog, which is a nervous wreck. I love him, but he most definitely requires a fair bit of my time. I I, I had to laugh when you were talking about a small dog. We took a small bunny and gosh, in the beginning of COVID, it's been four years and more. And, um, and that little furball, two and a half pounds of little furball, does not make sound, but he is a presence, I can tell you, a very quiet furball of big presence. Um, so I, I get I get the thing with pets. I was never a pet person until then. <laughs> but I have to ask, of all the things you were talking about after you sold FR, crypto and entertainment hedge fund advisor and leadership coach, leadership coach, why leadership coach? Not not that, so, so caveat, back up. Um, for those who are listening, Greg is one of 
the very few people that actually would bounce crazy ideas off of or just call because I needed someone to talk to. Um, so I do appreciate you taking in my calls and my random rants, which go from anywhere from five minutes to a whole hour or more until you have to shut me down. But why leadership coach? Isn't that a change or is that in line with the all of the things that you you were talking about? I'm trying to put them into pieces and puzzle. Yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> I think for me, when, when I was writing the FR and when I was analyzing out the space and thinking about how to provide guidance or insights into the space, I never had the level of depth of fintech knowledge that I felt like many of my peers had, and certainly people like you. What I always relied on was a certain, you know, sense of pattern recognition, um, a a broader interest in business in business models, and so I I sort of came to the conclusion that fintech for me was where I applied. You know, it was the canvas of where I applied a lot of the, the stuff that I, I thought I had some edge in understanding motives, understanding human psychology. And FinTech was, you know, a wonderful canvas for that. But as I started thinking about what I wanted to do in, in the next phase of my life, I think I came to the conclusion that, you know, to confine myself to FinTech as much as I loved certain aspects of the space wouldn't give me the um, the opportunities that I thought I had to apply my skills elsewhere. And so, you know, healthcare, energy, other industries full of great people, motivated people, brilliant people that I felt could benefit by going through the process of becoming a better version of themselves, a better leader. And so I took a lot of time and effort figuring out how to help people to become better. And, you know, for the first several months, I worked for free. Um, and then when I felt like I was good enough, I started charging people for that and haven't looked back. But it's all the same stuff, whether it is, you know, a, a person who runs a department in a bank, uh, runs a strategy at a hedge fund, runs a drug development program, like, all, it's all the same stuff that people deal with. And so I very much enjoy helping people tackle problems like that. And while I do keep a, a close eye on fintech, um, I've enjoyed having an opportunity to expand beyond fintech. You forgot two things, Greg. What's you that? are an amazing listener and you actually have a heart. <laughs> which I, I can't say well, that you. for a lot of people. Um, I think those actually make you stand out as someone who can actually help others because to help others, you need to be able to be willing to listen. Um, and you do an amazing job of that. So thank you. That's my roundabout way of saying thank you. Well, that's very kind. <laughs> now, um, let's talk a little bit about this new journey of yours. You talk to people, you help them, you apply your skill sets. I love the word canvas that you used. I wrote it down um, and help them understand themselves better and become a better version of themselves. Along the journey, you've been 
creating quite a few videos, I've noticed. You have your YouTube channel. Um, one thing I, I can't do, I, I am too self-conscious to actually be in front um, and do what you do. It was amazing. I remember there was one that you had a chair on your head. That was wild. Yeah. Um, and then there is one you talked about blind spots. And that one, that one caught my eye because you said something in there that resonated. Your past can blind you in ways that are highly relevant to your present situation. I do want to ask you though, how, what, what exactly can we do with blind spots? We all have them. I know I do have them and I'm biased as a human trying to change it is really, really hard. Isn't blind spots part of human nature? Yeah. Great, great question. So yes, you cannot, in my opinion, permanently rid yourself of your blind spots, but what you can do is develop a process where you can stay vigilant so as to ward off against them ultimately coming back to to bite you on 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 the on the behind i don't know if this is a, a family show here so i won't use bad words um and it it all stems from the the concept of kaizen which is a japanese concept of continual improvement it was part of the way in which japan became the manufacturing powerhouse first in the in the 70s and 80s uh, that it you know wound up becoming and it's this idea of acknowledging your humanity and recognizing that you will continue to make mistakes and you will continue to fall short of your aspirations and your goals but if you keep on trying to improve over time you can make fantastic progress in evolving into a better version of yourself. So I spend a huge amount of time with my clients in helping them to become better versions of themselves. And to do that, it requires people to go deep within themselves, to ask other people to help them point out their biases, their mistakes, their negative patterns. It entails taking feedback in a non-defensive way, not necessarily agreeing with all the feedback that people give you, but receiving it with an open mind and a willingness to acknowledge that maybe not all of it is true, but probably a lot of it is true. It involves examining your own biases. And I have a number of uh, exercises that I, I put three people through in order to do that. And it entails also being honest with yourself about where you have strengths and weaknesses. You know, you get to a point in life where you realize that you're not going to be a star pitcher for the New York Yankees, right? Or whatever your equivalent dream is of that. And that, you know, giving up on dreams you had as a kid can sometimes be very difficult, but it's also very liberating when you can identify very clearly where you have strengths and to lean into your strengths and to watch people who maybe didn't appreciate the strengths that they had recognize that, that is where they should focus their career moving forward is a beautiful thing to watch. And when people ultimately arrive at their strengths and stop trying to run away from them and, and be okay with who they are, I have seen time and time again how people can wind up doing amazing things on, on the professional side. But in order to do that, You've got to be honest with yourself, and that is very, very hard for people because there is often a big difference between how you perceive yourself and how you really are. And 
the, the one last thing I'll say about blind spots, you, you were very kind to mention that I do a bunch of videos and, you know, I'm sort of tinkering around with different formats and, and, and the like. But I did share out an article that I wrote about this uh, skit from the brilliant comedic duo Key and Peel about a dozen years ago entitled Substitute Teacher. And it involves a substitute teacher who tells the class up front that he spent 20 years in the inner city and so you shouldn't even think about messing with him. And when uh, members of the class proceed to uh, respond to his roll call uh, in a way that indicates that people in this nice leafy suburb pronounce their name differently than the way they did in the inner cities. Uh, you know, Mr. Garvey, the protagonist of the video, believes that the kids are in fact messing with him because of all of this luggage he has, all of this hypervigilance he has having been a teacher in the inner city. And so it is this marvelous example of how the past that we all have, right? But in this case, the path, the past of Mr. Garvey informs his perception of the present. And if you don't think you are in some ways controlled by your past, that's a problem. And so I spend a lot of time trying to figure out with clients how their past is very, very relevant to how they perceive and how they react uh, in the present day. I, I cannot agree more. There was a book recently I read, it's, um, it talked about a man's journey in, in the, in the U S growing up as a African American and the experiences he's gone through and reflecting back with what his parents told him with what he had seen with his own eyes and compare and contrast with what he sees as an adult. It's, um, it was a little troubling read, but I, your, your, your piece reminded me of that. Um, so switching gear a little bit, just a tad, not much. Um, now I cannot have you here without picking your brain a little. Um, cause I, you, you just, you just are you, um, I, I don't have a better word to say it. Um, looking at our industry where it is today, thinking back to when you first started writing. DFR. That was a while ago. I do wonder from your perspective, not just from an industry in general, but people as well, have things really changed in a meaningful or impactful way? Because I had my own feeling about it. Um, and it's, no, we, we haven't really changed much. Change, yes, but not in a way that I would hope we would be able to do, but curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, look, there was, when I started writing the FR, there was a huge amount of promise and optimism that fintech could ultimately change the financial pathway for a broad swath of people out there. What I think the industry has ultimately had to contend with is the idea that if you don't change the incentive system of the way in which financial services work, if policies are not adjusted, there's only so much that can be done with software. And there's only so much that can be done 
with mobile technology. And I believe that many of those sort of early attempts at creating breakthrough models were breakthrough fintech models were ultimately started by really smart, motivated people who had their heart in the right place, but who actually thought that they were separate from the broader financial services space. You know, fintech is something different. No, fintech is, to my way of thinking, a part of the financial services space. There is no more us versus them. We're all in the mosh pit together. And the macro forces matter. And so when I would interview CEOs or speak to people in the industry who, you know, I would try to ask questions of about what they think where interest rate policy is or, you know, the economic machinery or how politics and policy impact. And when people would sort of look at me with kind of a blank stare in their face saying, I, I don't know about any of that stuff, I would always think to myself, well, then you're probably not going to make it. Because that stuff matters, whether we like it or not, that stuff matters. And um, I don't care if you have a better, you know, solution on an app that can disrupt X, Y, or Z. You are part of the broader financial machinery that runs this country in the global economy. And if you don't have a point of view as to where you fit in within that, I think it's going to be very hard for you. And so what I think fintech has realized is that you know, those old dinosaurs, those big banks, those big brokerage firms, the asset management firms, the legacy infrastructure providers, you know, they, they maybe don't have the best technology and the best processes in the world, but they have other strengths. And it's not so easy to just unseat them. And, and so I think that like many, you know, areas of, of innovation, um, the people who are dedicated to technology for solutions will experience the hard way. Tech is very important, but it is not the only factor in driving how you deliver better solutions to businesses, people, et cetera. And so I think that there is a realization of that. And by the way, I think that the, the fact that, you know, there are some great fintech VCs out there, but the fintech VC timeline is to get exits within a certain period of time after you've been able to mark them up, you know, mark up your investments. If, unfortunately, innovation doesn't always comport with that nice, you know, picture that they have in their in their in their minds, and it's messy to help people uh, and 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 businesses through delivering better financial services. And you know, I, I think that the industry is is now experiencing that, right? I mean, when I started, rates were zero, the curve was incredibly low, and now, you know, we have a real cost of money. And I think that will have profound implications for the broader financial services sector, as it already has, and also the innovators within that sector. That's why I love talking to you, because I like your perspective and I absolutely agree. Um, especially, for example, given some of the space that I'm interested in, looking at longevity, looking at financial health, looking at how can we improve the well-being of more people that have been ignored. A large part of that 
was because of how things are structured, is because of incentives and lack thereof, is because of policies and politics and all of this. We can't ignore that because it is, for better word, part of our world. I don't quite know exactly how to change it, though. I think that's why I do get stuck and I have been stuck for the last few years when people ask, what do we need to do more of that we're not doing enough today is not because of lack of smart people wanting to do the right thing is not because of the lack of good intention is everything else. So what, what, what can we do? Well, I just want to back up here for a moment. So one of the things that I, I work with a lot of my clients on is trying to combat against the desire to achieve false progress. And, you know, most companies, as they're building, they establish a set of KPIs or, you know, use another acronym that essentially means the same thing. And these KPIs are designed to provide people with an indication as to whether or not they are moving in the right direction. Sometimes they're useful, oftentimes they're total BS. And the reason why they're BS is because the, the metrics that are used are not actually indicative of whether or not you're heading down the pathway to success. They are indicative of whether or not you are doing the things that you need to do in order to get another round of funding or, you know, achieve a partnership and the like. And so I feel like as it relates to the industry, um, many people would benefit from taking a long, hard, critical look and asking themselves, if their goal is to democratize X, are they really democratizing X or are they just doing a good job of helping nail their KPIs down because that's what their board, their investors and everyone else wants them to, to do, and that's what they want to see. I feel like the, 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 the sort of the, the cold hard reality is there are areas of opportunity um, within financial services. To my way of thinking, the most marvelous thing about decentralization and blockchain and crypto is that it can serve as a forcing mechanism to get the incumbents to behave better and potentially government regulators to behave better. You know, when I think about all of the fintech startups that no longer exist, but nevertheless got the big banks and the like off their butts to upgrade their UI and their UX and to speak to younger people, I think to myself, okay, maybe the folks behind those startups didn't wind up getting rich, but what they did was they served as a, as a loud and, you know, very, very clearly heard wake up call. I believe that more than any other sector, the broader sort of crypto space can serve as a wake up call for the incumbents. And even if they don't wind up being successful, they will hopefully um, provide a good countervailing force to make financial services better for all. What can you do about that? It depends on where you are in the world. It depends on your approach. Your, your attitudes towards crypto and the like. I love it. I know I have a lot of good friends of mine who don't. And by the way, the other thing I, I, I would also say is, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not blind 
to the, the politics behind crypto, and I am very well aware that many of my friends on the other side of the aisle, on the right side of the aisle, are pro-crypto, and many progressive people and Democrats are anti-crypto. If Donald Trump uh, wins re-election, I think we're going to see a fascinating flip. And I think many of the progressives who right now don't like crypto, they associate it with SBF and fraud and whatever, are all of a sudden going to embrace crypto because they are not going to trust the government that will be in power. And crypto has this marvelous way of appealing to the folks who feel like they're on the outside. Greg, I have a headache. <laughs> You're killing me. Sorry. I do notice a difference in attitudes towards crypto, digital assets, decentralization, and all of those concepts between the US and Asia. I spent a fair amount of time in Hong Kong, and the attitude is very different. Um, the from both from the private sector perspective as well as from the regulator perspective. Um, so it is fascinating to watch. Um, they do and they did acknowledge the SPF and, and all of those scandals. And, and look, if you look at even incumbents, financial services, um, institutions, there's no lack of, you know, bad actors either. So I, I do think that it is not entirely fair to be pointing out to to some of those um, scammers, if you will, in the past few years and say, look, you know, the whole industry is full of scammers. <laughs> there are scammers everywhere. Um, they follow money. That's what they do. Where there's money, there will be bad intention. I, I you know, I, I um, long time ago, I banked Enron. After uh, WorldCom declared bankruptcy, I was involved for a while in helping the, you know, sort out the bankruptcy there. I don't recall anybody saying back then we need to ban equity because WorldCom and Enron and all these other bad actors ultimately abuse the system to enrich themselves. No, no, nobody talks about, you know, getting rid of roads because bad people use the roads as well as good people. Nobody talks about getting rid of cash because there's traces of cocaine on a very large percentage of, you know, $100 bills in this country. And yet, for some reason, when crypto is implicated and used by bad people, people say, you know, we should ban the crypto. And a Asia's got it right. Asia, to my way of thinking, is going to leapfrog, uh, you know, the West uh, in financial uh, sophistication and innovation, in part because they are embracing blockchain and crypto in a way that we just can't seem to do right now in, in this country. Change we need. Yeah. So let's, before we wrap up, let's talk about the new year. What do you have plans for the new year? I, I am super curious. And before I forget, where do you people find you if they need your services? And mm -hmm. my God, many of them will. Thank you. They can find me on LinkedIn. That's the easiest. I have a bunch of other um, ways if you Google me. But LinkedIn, I check it every day or thereabouts. So that, that's a great one. Thank you for, for that. Um, my plan is to do more coaching. I would love to do more coaching within the broader financial services space. Um, as I mentioned to you, I have enjoyed spending time outside of the space and coaching people. But financial services is where I spent 20 plus years of my career. I know it the best. 
of all the different industries. So I would love to do that. I, I don't know. I think, yes, you know that I did this. During the previous election, I uh, ran a dark money group uh, dedicated to trying to defeat Donald Trump. I don't know how much my dark money group had anything to do with it. Dark money is totally legal, by the way. It may not be lovely, but it's legal. I may um, start another dark money group. I, I, I have many conservative friends. I respect people across the political uh, spectrum. I don't believe Donald Trump is a conservative, though, and I believe he is an autocrat, and I would very much like to see him defeated. So I may spend a little bit of time to the extent that I can, uh, apart from coaching, doing that, and I will continue to be involved in the hedge fund world, and um, I am forever en enthralled by capital markets and the degree of unpredictability they have. They always figure out a way to surprise me, and so I plan on spending some time there too, and I think it's virtually certain as we go deeper into 2024, there are going to be a lot of surprises heading our way that will ultimately have profound impacts on the capital market. So I plan on uh, being a, uh, an active participant in all of that. Active, you always have been. You never sit on the sidelines. So that's what I admire you for. Thank you so much for spending time with us, my wonderful friend. And for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week. Thank you, Theo. It was a great pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you.